There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 Ranch We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon. It's good to be back north, uh, north in Westchester. I was in uh, Jupiter, Florida for the last six months. I want to thank all the people, all our fans, all our subscribers who prayed for me on my long, arduous drive home. I uh, drove for 21 hours over two days. I'm still a little bit numb, but I made it nonetheless, and I want to just thank everyone uh, for praying for me. You know, tonight we're covering a case that unfortunately we're seeing way too often lately. And it derives out of bad relationships, obviously, uh, in marriages, but it escalates to a level that it should never get to. And we've seen these cases over the last year with Gabby Petito, um, Maya Malete. Uh, now we don't know what happened to Madeline Kingsbury in Minnesota. Years ago, a famous case of Dr. Robert Bierenbaum in 1985 uh, killed his wife, put her in, a, um, in an airplane, flew over the Atlantic Ocean and threw her out into the ocean. And they didn't charge him till 2000. So for 15 years, he was a free man. But we're going to examine why is, do these things happen and what did the police do to build these cases. How did they build these cases? Of course, the person uh, that is charged with it is potentially guilty of it, is fighting for their you know, legal life in court. But the police have to do an outstanding job in order to build a case. And there's many, many of these cases lately. And we're gonna discuss the evidence that the police must uncover uh, both electronic evidence, physical evidence, blood evidence, potentially weapons if they were used in these cases. And in this case, um, with Brian Walsh, who is now officially charged with killing his wife, Anna Walsh, um, he was in jail for a while for a different charge. He was arrested on January 8th, 2023. And um, it was that he misled investigators. That's what he was being held in. And he also had another a case. So when we talk about perpology, the study of the purse, the study of the perp, he had a case where he was going to prison for selling bogus art, Andy Warhol prints and passing them off as the real thing to an art gallery. So he sort of had a criminal mind here, but it escalated into the unthinkable. And today, or the, on the 23rd, it was the 24th, they announced in court that he is, in fact, being charged with the murder of his wife, Anna. And these cases baffle all of us because here's a couple that have three young boys. And now the three young boys are without both parents. If, of course, again, Brian Walsh is innocent to proven guilty, but he's in jail right now awaiting trial. And so potentially the kids could be without both parents. If he does get convicted of this crime, they're going to be without both parents. So how horrific. With me tonight to discuss this case uh, is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing good, Billy. Welcome back to the Northeast, baby. Well, I can't say that I'm so thrilled. <laughs> I know, I, I know. My driveway was cold and rainy. I was like, oh, welcome back to the Northeast. But I'm, ha I'm happy to be home. And also a double treat tonight is retired NYPD sergeant, uh, Professor Mike Geary, a professor at Albertus Magnus uh, College in Connecticut. Also, Mike has a law degree. Mike, welcome to the Police Off the Cuff show. Bill, thank you for having me and welcome back. 
you know, Mike, it's so good to have you because, you know, you almost never turn me down uh, unless you have some family catastrophe. And that doesn't happen too often. But, no. uh, you know, Phil, I want to, you know, I want to play a little bit of um, of the, the uh, court. Uh, well, this is uh, uh, the court TV. Uh, a little bit of this video. It tells a lot about this case. You got it, Billy. The wonders of live broadcast. <laughs> you want me to give a little rundown, Bill? Bill, nothing's playing. I don't think he could. Could you hear me, Mike? I can hear you fine. Okay. I, but I'm maybe we're having some severe technical difficulties. I don't think Billy's hearing us. The chat is saying, I can hear you, Phil. Yeah. I'm going to try and signal uh, Bill. I don't think he's hearing us. No. No. You know what? Maybe I'll just give a little rundown of uh, yeah. the early stages of the case. Uh, Billy, I don't think you could. We can't. Uh, he's not hearing us. I, I'm going to just give a little quick rundown of uh, what went on in this case. Uh, Anna Walsh was last seen alive on New Year's Eve. And uh, basically early on New Year's Day was the last time that she was also known to be alive. Uh, on New Year's Day, uh, the husband, Brian, had uh, reached out to the babysitter and asked him to uh, ask the babysitter to come to the home to uh, watch the kids from 2 to 7 p.m. Uh, so that him and Anna could go out and get something to eat. When the babysitter arrived, Anna wasn't present. Uh, Brian informed her that uh, she had been called out of town on an emergency. She was a real estate agent that worked in Washington, D.C. They lived in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, actually, in, in uh, not Boston, but it was in the Massachusetts. It was... Uh, somewhere in that area. Anyway, uh, when she gets there, she's told that uh, Anne is not present. And um, there is uh, a period of time where he goes out, he comes back, he goes out, he comes back. Uh, and he doesn't report Anna missing until the 4th of January. Uh, okay. That's when uh, concerned uh, people from where she worked had contacted him and he contacted back. He hadn't heard from her. And that's when uh, eventually she's reported missing. Uh, the police visit the home and they find the Volvo in the driveway with the seats down, plastic liner inside. Uh, they later find traces of blood in the Volvo. That was on the 4th of January. Uh, on the 5th, uh, Brian is believed to have made visits to his mom's uh, Swampscott apartments uh, nearby uh, in the area with trash bags uh, that were put into the dumpster. There was video surveillance of him uh, making five or six trips to dumpsters. Um, Later on, they wind up recovering, uh, they say, 10 bags. Uh, there was rugs with bloodstains, cleaning products, and his boots, uh, a hacksaw, which also had blood in a bone fragment, fragment uh, a Prada purse, which we believe belonged to her, right. some jewelry, a necklace, which uh, there was pictures of her wearing that necklace, and uh, also towels uh, with some bloodstains on them and some uh, a COVID card. Mike, is there anything that I left out? Maybe you want to throw some comments about the early stages of this uh, investigation. Yeah, apparently the, um, the the last definite sighting by an, the, by an adult, because there was a little um, inconsistency about the uh, about January 1st, but the last time a, uh, an adult saw uh, her and told the police that they were seen was like one o'clock in the morning, right after they finished celebrating New Year's Eve, uh, the one guest that they had uh, left around between one and one thirty, which is a normal time, and then right. that was it. That was the last time she was actually seen by an adult. There is one report that I, I've heard uh, that um, one of her children, maybe they interviewed a child and said they thought they saw their mother. Maybe they got the date wrong. They saw their mother on the afternoon of the first, sometime in the afternoon, which 
would be inconsistent with what um, the time frame that the police are working with. But um, the problem, one of the problems also with the uh, with the uh, gentleman is that um, he was seen. He, he gave a uh, description of where he was at CVS and at a, a couple of stores. And You're talking about Brian, Mike. You're talking right, about Brian. Brian, Brian right. Okay. It, there was no um, evidence that he would gone to either one. So his his alibi where he was in the beginning of like business hours on the first was blown to pieces. Um, they found, as you said, they found the Volvo, they found the blood, they found the tarp. Um, they found the surveillance video of him at Lowe's getting uh, all kinds of cleaners, Tyvek suit, buckets, mops, cleaning. Mike, agents. Mike, Mike, I don't mean to interrupt you, but before we go to that, I just want to okay. make a, a comment about something. Um, you know, uh, Brian had uh, uh, been diagnosed as a sociopath years before. Yeah by the, um, I have it written down here, um, a, the Norfolk, uh, I'm sorry, Norfolk Superior Court is where the case is being right. held. The Austin Riggs Psych Center in Massachusetts had uh, identified him as being a sociopath. He obviously had some issues in the past. He also had a pending criminal case right. for uh, selling that Bill talked about in the early, uh, as soon as we came on, uh, for selling the, uh, the fake Andy Warhol art. So again, uh, there was uh, the components of that, which I'm going to lean towards motive with that because yes. apparently she had conversations with a friend where she said she knew he was going to be going to jail and he was going to be sentenced on those charges and that she was going to leave him and take her children and move to D.C. So that's probably right. the first component of the motive. And right, then guys, we also... I'm, I'm, guys, I'm back. I just oh. I have a problem with the monitor. And I'm not going to it. So... One of the things I wanted to talk about today is that, look, how the police are building this case against him, and not just him, how the police built build the case against, you know, Brian Laundry, the Gabby Petito case, how the police are potentially building a case against uh, Adam in, in the uh, Madeline Kingsbury case. Some of the things that they do, and Mike, I want you to go with this one. Some of the most important things, of course, are using a cell phone and and using uh, computer technology. Here he was searching things on Google. You know how how long does it take for a body to start decaying? You know uh, all different types of things. Um, I, I had the list of them. Uh, Hacksaw is it the best tool to dismember? Yeah, that was um, another search. Dismemberment and best ways to dispose of a body. I mean, those are the things that people don't understand. They don't just stick out. You got to find them, and he wasn't. He, he wasn't smartly, or maybe not smartly. He was using his son's iPad to search these things. I guess thinking that the police, although oh, never search my son's iPad, they'll be looking for mine, and I'm not searching on mine. Not right. the brightest bulb in the, uh, you know, his wattage was a little off. I think, you know. No, <laughs> no. I think part of the problem is, as a sociopath, he doesn't see anything wrong with that. He doesn't. He doesn't see, he doesn't connect the dots like a normal person would. For him, it's, you know, it's a tool. He's got to solve a problem. He's got his wife in the basement. She's dead. She's bleeding out. He has to dispose of her body. And he's just doing a random Google search. He's, this not was not well thought out. Thankfully, makes it easier to uh, prove in a court of law um, the case against him. But for him, he's a sociopath. He doesn't. Uh, you know, dismembering a body is not a big deal for him. He's just trying to figure out, okay, I got to solve a problem. Uh, how do I look this up? Ah, I'll use the internet. I'll Google. Everybody can Google anything nowadays. I Google how to dispose of a 110 pound female. Um, is a hacksaw a good tool to dismember a body? Um, and you, you wonder now looking at it, what was he, could he possibly be thinking? But you're looking at it from the point of view of a normal, rational person. But he's a sociopath. He's just trying to solve a problem. And that's the way to solve a problem. You can Google anything nowadays and come up with an answer. And the scary part is he didn't even realize that he's leaving an electronic trail that's going to lead straight back to him. Absolutely. You know, as the police continued to investigate, a picture of Brian began to emerge. Detectives poured over hours of grainy security footage from the CVS and the Whole Foods in uh, Swampscott, where Anna's husband said he'd been 
on January 1st. They didn't spot Brian. They did find evidence that he bought ice cream for his son on January 2nd, but it wasn't the only time he left the house. Police also found surveillance footage of Brian clad in a mask and gloves at Home Depot that day, buying mops, brushes, tape, a Tyvek suit with boot covers, goggles, buckets, baking soda, and a hatchet, all in cash. When officers searched Brian's basement, suspicions grew with the discovery of drops of blood and a bloody knife. On January 9th, just five days after Anna was reported missing, police charged Brian with obstructing their investigation by lying about the whereabouts after she vanished. When authorities led Brian in handcuffs out of the courthouse in Quincy, he smiled broadly for TV cameras. That's pretty sick, huh? I would say so, Billy. You know, we talked about sociopath. I just want to read the definition of a sociopath. A sociopath is a person with personality disorders manifesting itself into extreme antisocial attitudes and behavior and a lack of conscience. So I think that kind of sums up in a nutshell what we believe the mental state of Brian was at this time. You know, Billy, uh, when we talked about uh, the searches that he did, he also did a search on December the 27th, the best state for a male to divorce in. So he knew that the impending uh, marital problems were lurking. Uh, you had the criminal case against him. Also, that there was a $2.7 million life insurance. I think several policies, but adding up to $2.7 million with him as the beneficiary. So again, that's more towards a motive to kill his wife, you know? So there's just many, many things. And real quick, I'm going to read the searches that I found. There was eight of them. Hair on a dead body. What happens to hair on a dead body? Baking soda. Can it make the smell of a dead body lessen? How long before a body starts to smell, a decaying body? How do you throw away body parts? 10 ways to dispose of a body. Best hacksaw to dismember a body. Can you ID a body with broken teeth? That's one of the real ones that jumped out at me. Can you be charged with murder with no body? Bill, you talked about the case with the New York doctor that threw his wife out of a plane and she's somewhere in the ocean. Body never recovered. He was charged and convicted of murder. So the answer to that question, unfortunately for Brian Walsh, is yes, you can be convicted. Is it a difficult case? Yeah, probably a little bit more difficult. Not impossible. It's been done many times. You know, there's um, where they found some of the evidence in the dump. Uh, I believe they found some bloody clothing and uh, which linked uh, to Anna Walsh. So th this guy, even in trying to cover up his steps, uh, he actually, you know, messed up even worse. Uh, you know, think of, you know, here he, he pays in cash at Home Depot. How brilliant was that? You know, also there'll be no electronic credit card print. So he pays in cash, but he's caught on video. And, and you know, he, he doesn't consider these things because he's not a smart criminal. But then again, let's draw a parallel. We have a smart Kim, criminal named Alec Murdoch. And look look how he, you know, the tangled web we weave That's when right. we choose to deceive, right? Mike? Yeah, I mean, you could take the smartest person, Alec Murdoch, very bright. He's an attorney, been uh, working in that county down in um, Hampton County in South Carolina for 25, 30 years. He's been ripping off people with all kinds of, uh, you know, phony schemes to get their money, ripping off poor people who need, you know, not not wealthy people. He's ripping off the poorest people that he can, victimizing people. You have um, this gentleman here, Brian Walsh. He, he's pretty. He's probably got a, a high IQ. He's got a, a good job. Whatever he was doing beforehand, he was. It was a. It was a, a fraudster. Um, you have that. So you know you got that. We've talked about this before. You know it doesn't matter if you're if you're brilliant in a particular uh, field uh, that you're working in, accounting, law, whatever it happens to be. But when it comes to murder, you're you're a stone cold rookie, and that stone cold rookie has to uh, contend with you, people like you and Phil, and they're they're not in 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 their element. They're not playing on their ball field. They're playing by your rules in your ball field. I said it once: if uh, Einstein decided to kill his wife, they would catch him because no matter what, he's not. He doesn't know how to do these things. He doesn't know the, the science of killing a person. And uh, he would be caught. And a lot of these cases, it's probably not well thought out. 
they're trying to catch up after they commit the crime and uh, they can't undo what they've done and they can't um, take away evidence that's already produced. Uh, they can't always hide it. So uh, it, it's pathetic. But um, thankfully, he was really amazingly careless. You know, Mike, even in the last year, we had uh, Maya Malete. Uh, her body was never found. Her husband is uh, in hearings now. He's going to be going to trial. Of course, we have the horrendous case of Gabby Petito, uh, which caught the whole uh, nation, if not the whole world's imagination regards, regarding domestic violence. Uh, of course, this case, Brian Walsh, Anna Walsh, uh, we mentioned Dr. Bierenbaum from 1985 was tried in 2000. In 2021, at a parole hearing, he admitted to exactly how he did it, which was exactly how the district attorney, uh, you know, said that he did it. And he did it exactly the way the district attorney predicted. So having said all of that, it seems like the most dangerous time for a woman in a relationship that's falling apart is when it is falling apart. And when it seems that the woman, woman has decided to do something about it and to leave. And in this case, that's what triggered it. Uh, you can say in the um, Madeline Kingsbury, even though she has not been found yet, and it's been over a month right now, uh, that relationship was over or falling apart. Same, Same thing case. with Maya Malete. So what kind of advice can we give women to you know, avoid this type of domestic violence and this type of violence leading when it goes too far this is what happens that's why domestic violence procedures and police departments got much stricter over the years yeah. so what advice can we give as former police officers to all women listeners out there as how to handle this stuff phil well, uh, listen, there's a lot of things that you covered right there, Billy. I'm just going to try and give the best advice is, you know, the minute that there starts to be any hint or sign that there's violence, you have to run. Run fast. Run away. Don't come back. You have to get away. There are many, many uh, different services in most cities that will help uh, victims of uh, domestic abuse, domestic violence. So, uh, you know, and it happens to male and female uh, most of the time it's female, but uh, there is services. You know, when a woman with children is faced with the fact that she's being abused and that she has to leave the home, there's not a lot of uh, uh, safety net involved. So there are services that can help. Uh, again, any type of violence, even the threat of violence, should not be tolerated in any way, shape, or form. Bill, you and I and, and Mike as well, we've dealt with many, many domestic violence cases over the years. And it's probably the most dangerous uh, incident that a police officer can get involved in is domestic violence case. A little over a year ago, we had two police officers killed that were called to an apartment up in uh, up in Manhattan. Three two precinct in Manhattan. Yeah, three two. Those both officers were killed. They were called to a domestic violence uh, situation. Uh, you know, fortunately, the perp was also killed, but we lost two brave police officers that were now promoted to detectives. And uh, it's just probably the most uh, dangerous situation for uniformed police officers. So you know, again, I just wanted to mention, Mike, you, you taught at the same college I did. I won't say yeah. the name of the college, but 99% were uh, inner city kids. They were mm -hmm. black and Hispanic kids. And I would look out into that audience and I knew some of them were being victims of domestic violence. I could just tell because I could see it in their eyes when I spoke about it. And I used to say to them, no one, no one should put their hands on you. And if they do, that's what doors are made for. Walk through it and get the hell out of there. You know, exactly. I think they, a lot of them came from backgrounds and they weren't taught that. They saw a lot of abuse and some of them came up to me and asked me what to do, you know. And Mike, I'm sure you had the same experience. Yeah. Um, you know, in the beginning when um, I was teaching at that, at that college, you know, you would, you would talk about it in a criminology class, you talk about domestic violence and, you know, you could see uh, from what the comments in the class were that people had some familiarity with it. And even in this case with the Anna Walsh case, there's a report that in 2017, before they were even married, he, she had filed a police report claiming that he had threatened her 
her life over the phone. And she ended up not cooperating with the police in that case and wanted the case dropped. So, and when I was originally on the police department in the 4-6, I thought domestic violence was, uh, you know, mostly for, for uh, poorer people in, in an inner city. But you then realize people like uh, Anna Walsh, who's a uh, upper, upper middle class person in terms of lifestyle and income, uh, she's just as susceptible as anyone else. So it's not uh, anything to do with religion, ethnicity, or social background or economic background whatsoever. It's a personality issue that the aggressor has, and they are very dangerous. And the, as Phil said, the very first incident where there's a threat, um, you have to be a, you have to be willing and able to get out as fast as you can. It usually does not get better. It usually escalates. And unfortunately for uh, Anna uh, Walsh, um, she, uh, I think about within about three or four days of her confiding to a friend that she was probably going to leave her husband when he was finally uh, sentenced um, and start a new life with her family in, uh, in Washington. He saw it coming probably uh, there was talk of marital infidelity, but there's that tipping point where, um, you know, it got it got to the point where there was no going back and he freaked out. But uh, right at the very beginning, no matter what, the first time that there's any sort of um, uh, violence or threat of violence, that's the time. And that's the safest time because it's not going to get any safer than that. That's the safest time to walk out. You know, Mike, I just want to mention <clears throat> people in the chat remind me and re-educate me. It does happen the other way around. Sure. There sure. are abusive women. That I said that women. earlier. Yeah, it sure. does happen. It's more common the other way around. However, I just to be fair, everyone always straightens me out in the chat. You know, there is potential that it could be a female or male. I've seen that before, too. Yes. And right. it's in a way the male in that type of situation is treated a little bit unfairly because it's always assumed by officers that the male is the aggressor. And that's not always the case, Phil. Absolutely, Billy. And I think that uh, one of the things that needs to be done is what I said earlier. Uh, you know, if a woman slapped me in the face, I mean, I'm not going to go to the hospital, you know, but go report it, go report it to the police. I mean, that's domestic violence. You know, you, you need to, you know, document these type of things. Uh, when I talked about the, the safety nets that are in place to help people that are uh, victims of domestic violence, there's support groups. There's, there's uh, you know, in, in the criminal court system in New York, they have uh, counseling. They have support groups that will help people. They can place uh, a woman with children can be placed. So, again, it, it does hit both sides of the uh, of the, uh, you know, the sexes, but uh, more prevalent uh, with women. And again, we, we made the point that, uh, you know, there was some, uh, you know, some things leading up to this that uh, I don't know if they were considered red flags, but uh, I'm calling the motive. Uh, you know, we had the money motive. We had the uh, the fact that he may be going to jail. Uh, there was obviously talk of divorce. And then his mother hired a private investigator and revealed to Brian that possibly Anna was having an affair. Now, again, it's unconfirmed, but it was reported in court that there was a private investigator that gave information to Brian that uh, Anna might have been involved in dating. And uh, allegedly th that person was uh, was interviewed and said, yes, we're at a dating stage. So again, all of these things go towards motive. Uh, I think uh, perhaps, you know, I mean, it's, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback it at this point, but she should probably have left and then done all the other things that she was going to do. She should have gotten out of there. I mean, if he had uh, previously been diagnosed as a sociopath, there must have been some, uh, Mike talked about it in 2017, there was the threat of violence. And, you know, maybe there was actual violence. Uh, that's the time to run out the door, like Billy said. I, I thought those were great points. You know, guys, one, you know, drawing parallels to the uh, these other cases, there was a case in Connecticut in uh, 2021, Fotis Dulos, yeah. uh, killed, killed his wife. Uh, and they were uh, actually a very affluent couple also. Mm -hmm. uh, what was his wife's name was um, Jennifer Dulos. Right. Very similar to this case because they never found her body. And he was arrested. 
and then he wound up committing suicide. So again, a tragic, tragic end to a domestic violence situation. But as the police dug deeper and deeper and deeper into the case, uh, things just came apart. Mike, you shaking your head, you know that case. Oh, yeah, I remember because because um, I teach in Connecticut. But um, and so we, we hear a little bit about it, you know, up there with the students, because it's one of the things they would like to talk about. Yeah, that was and it was eerily similar. Thank you for bringing it up, because uh, he he allegedly dismembered uh, his wife's body. And with, I think with his girlfriend uh, was seen visiting like 10 or 12 dumpsters throughout the area, uh, throughout the town. And they ended up pretty much getting away with uh, the stuff being, uh, you know, picked up by sanitation, by private sanitation and, and taken away. But, um, you know, that would be, those are the kind of cases and these things are published and people read about them. And then unfortunately you'll get someone like uh, Brian Walsh and the idea will pop into his head. Ah, okay. Well, I'll do a dismemberment kind of thing because I've seen this on, you know, on the internet. Um, I've seen this, on the news and um they're they're smart enough to they're smart and stupid at the same time they're smart enough to understand that they they it makes it difficult for for the police but they're dumb enough because they don't realize that things that they've done they can't undo and uh so uh, in terms of time place people last seeing them things that they might have said before things that are on official records business records you know electronic records you can't you can't like erase that once that stuff is made. Absolutely. That could have been the template, Mike. That could have been he could have saw that case on the news because he basically followed a very similar pattern. Yeah. And in that case, the the victim they did they did extensive searches in the mm -hmm. garbage dumps in that area with, to no avail. They never recovered a body. However, just recently, in the last week or two, his girlfriend, who was charged, for, uh, I think she was charged as uh, accessory to uh, 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 unlawful uh, uh, dumping of human remains, yeah. something to that effect, yeah. or, or tampering with evidence. She was given an ankle bracelet and re released re uh, recently. She's got home confinement. So she's still awaiting trial. But again, who's the real victims of that case besides uh, Jennifer Dulos? The children are left with no parents. It's disgusting that what goes through a person's mind to do such a thing. And perhaps in this case, the, uh, the Brian Walsh case, maybe he saw that case. That could have been the template. And he could have said, well, I'm going to be smarter than that guy. I'm not yeah. going to kill myself. But uh, unfortunately, uh, again, ch three children, three boys left without both parents. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime stories from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. Go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And uh, make comments. We love to read your comments. We try to answer most of the comments. If you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel membership with, count them, five different levels. And you see the folks in the green font. They're part of our YouTube family. And we really appreciate our friends, our family, our subscribers. And that's what makes Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories the Real Crime Story, the real true crime uh, podcast that it is. You know, Phil, and all the things we're talking about, and Mike, this goes for you too. It's, you know, it, it's easy to um, criticize the police in these cases. We, we were even criticized for our point of view in the Gabby Petito case. And all of us have responded to hundreds and hundreds of domestic violence incidents over our police career. And it's always easy to Monday morning quarterback when you're not on the scene, you're not talking to both parties involved. But having said that, and you can connect this to any case, what is what are the police trying to, and Mike, I'm going to refer to you first. What are the police trying to build? Let, let, let's talk about even this Brian Walsh case. What are, What's the most important evidence they're going to try to build to build this case? Because they don't want this guy to, they get out of prison. They want to get him convicted of murder. And again, nobody recovered. What's the most important part of this investigation and the collection of evidence? Well, from, from my perspective as a patrolman responding to the scene or as the patrol sergeant, I'm going to have a different view than, you know, you and Phil. Um, but I think the most important thing that I would look for as a sergeant responding to that scene or as a patrolman responding to that scene, I think the police actually... One uh, went there on like, almost like a check 
uh, like welfare check um, uh, because uh, not only did he report his wife missing, but I think the, the people uh, down in D.C. reported her as not coming to work. Um, but I would look for, uh, you know, um, a, a, a room uh, that looked like there had been a, a, a fight in there, like, you know, things knocked over, things broken, because, um, you know, that's that's a sure sign that there's been some violence. Um, I would look for some sort of blood, bloody napkins, uh, something in the garbage, like a bloody towel. You know, that's what that's from from my perspective as a patrol patrol sergeant. That's what I would look for first. Um, you guys would do, you know, to get the like all the subpoenas for the electronic information. But I would look for the blood, the, uh, the most obvious thing, the blood, the uh, area where it looks like maybe a fight took place, um, you know, defensive wounds or, you know, on on the person who is actually that I'm talking to, seeing if they've got scratches on their face, uh, you know, torn clothing, uh, a, a bloody lip, you know, that sort of thing. That's that's what I would look for first. Um, the most obvious, I guess. You know, Mike, incidentally, the picture I'm going to put up on the screen right now, the picture on the left is him buying all those products that we spoke yes. about before from the Home Depot, wearing gloves and a mask and paying cash because he is a genius and a criminal mastermind. And he pays cash and not realizing he's being caught on video, uh, buying these things that make him look uh, terribly guilty or, or well, at least uh it's yeah. it's establishing enough probable cause to arrest him for this crime and charge him with murder phil you know bill i just want to point something out on that picture if you can put that picture back up it says lows on that woman's jacket i know it's not really a big point of contention yeah. it, it says lows they've been reporting home depot it looks like he bought stuff in lows but either way he bought the products that they've recovered and that's more evidence evidence against him bill i want to talk quickly about what i would do as an investigator if i get called to the scene all right he's going to report his wife missing Obviously, I'm going to give a good, hard interview. I want to talk to him. I want to get as much information out of him. And I'm going to ask him questions after he tells me whatever it is he's going to tell me. He's going to tell me my wife went out off to D.C. on an emergency call, whatever his story was initially. But now I'm going to ask him about how are things in the marriage? Are you guys getting along? Do you have issues uh, financially? Do you have any uh you know, ch uh, trouble with your children? Is there different things going on? And I'm going to tell him to be honest with me because obviously I want to eliminate him as a suspect. So he's going to give me more information. Uh, I'm going to do a quick criminal background uh, check. We always talk about victimology and perpology. I'm going to do a little possible perpology on him. I'm going to run to see if he has a criminal record. I'm going to find out that he has this pending case where he's going to be sentenced very shortly. So again, that might be a red flag right there. Uh, the vehicle they look at the vehicle in the driveway and they see the seats are pushed down you know folded down there's a, a plastic top in the back and they later do a crime scene on the vehicle and they recover some blood so those are the things the red flags that are going to initially get my uh curiosity up uh again i'm going to start talking to family members right away her closest friends Mike alluded to, we're going to get into the cell phone, pull her cell phone records, try to get text messages, see who she was speaking to, look into her social media, see who she was talking to. Uh, all of those things would give me a lot of information for me to conduct this investigation and to move forward with it. You would probably find out from the girlfriend that said, uh, you know, she was telling her how she was going to relocate and divorce her husband based on the pending criminal case. And you may find out text messages about if she was dating someone. So again, all of those things, now you get that information, you can go back to him and say, did you know about this? Did you know about that? You didn't tell us about this. You didn't tell us about that. Obviously you catch him in a few lies and then it goes from there. Well, Phil, I'm a big believer in a lot of times the answer in all these cases is um, the victimology. And because she's not alive, that doesn't mean you can't still do the victimology. You talk to the people closest to her and a big interview that I would want to do in this case would be her co-workers. Absolutely. You know, what was she telling them? A lot of times you spend more time at work and with people that you work with than you do with your family. You know, uh, Professor Mike, you know that you got you have a work wife and you have a, a home wife, right? Right. <laughs> oh, you're in trouble. So you have people that you work with that you're with way more than you are with your own family when you're working a lot of hours. Yeah. Yeah, you work in. Uh, I remember just, just, just in policing. You're working so many hours. That old nine squad chart we did. My partner Augie and I 
you know, we were like brothers because we saw each other like every day. And there was times where you didn't see your family for a long time. And same thing with with uh, with your wife. You know, you're you're working with somebody for hours and hours and hours. And you have a lot of incidental time where you're talking, you're making comments. Uh, you might tell them little tidbits about your life or whatever. And uh, there are things that you might share with um, intimate things you might share about your feelings about your your family life at home, that especially because I think Anna was actually in somewhat working pretty much Monday to Friday down Washington, D.C. and was actually kind of like a commuter marriage. So she had a lot of time with her work, her co-workers down in D.C. And, and I think they probably would have heard some comments that she would have made, made about her home life at home. Although it seemed that the husband had uh, a good act and he put on a good act to the neighbors and the friends that he was a big shot. There was a story about him picking up a $6,000 dinner tab uh, when they were out with their friends and uh, buying, you know, like a $2,000 bottle of wine, like, you know, and he didn't have that kind of money. Uh, And then there was another story about him potentially stealing a million dollars from his parents. Yes. So he had some real uh, dirty dealing going on in his life. And that's all part of what we refer to here on Police Off the Cuff as the perpology, looking into his background. The other thing is part of the background check is looking to see if there are any uh, DV reports, if there's any complaint reports within that household. And that tells the story to the police. And that's when you do a very thorough investigation. Snug with Pug, thank you so much for, for the 449 uh, super sticker. I love the picture of that little pug dog. Um, so yeah, and the investigation is so important. We're not just even, we're drawing parallels to these other cases too. You know, like we all painfully covered the Gabby Petito case and we, you know, I, I, I believe the uh, Petito family sued the, um, the police uh, what was the name of that police agency, Phil? Um, oh, uh, they were from okay. that park. Say again. They were from that big park. They were. Ho- uh, 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 Holland? No, 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 no. Moab. No. Um, no. Moab. 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 That's what the, the Moab police Moab. was. Uh, uh, that's where they where they did the car stop. Yes, oh, okay. So I thought you were talking about the uh, and the the officers that did the stop and the ones that made the decisions. They were they got a big rip. They actually hired an outside agency mm-hmm. to look into how they handled that domestic violence incident. And when we watched it and dissected it and watched it again, we said, we thought they did a pretty good job, you know, but I yet, stand by that. I stand by it that. Had the eyes, it had the eyes of the world on it. Everyone was criticizing that. Oh, had they arrested Gabby even or arrested both of them? It may have, um, you know, prevented her murder which happened, I think it was two or three weeks later after that incident. So so you, Monday morning quarterbacks are saying that, that if they, she or he or both of them had been arrested that day, that would have prevented her murder two or three weeks later. I'm not convinced of that. I mean, I think it's possible that, you know, obviously if one of them were arrested, maybe uh, – the other would have went back home and maybe it was separated or something. It's possible, of course. But when you looked at that video and you saw how much time those police officers spent, uh, did everything by the book, separated the two. They got Gabby calmed down. They questioned her extensively. They brought a female officer to the scene, all the different things. Now, listen, if Gabby Petito had stated he hit me in the eye, cracked me in the eye, look at the mark I got, I think he would have been in cuffs. Uh, unfortunately, that isn't the way it went. We thought that they spent a lot of time with her. We know in the NYPD, uh, domestic violence cases like that, you come upon something in the street, two people arguing, you would probably do the same thing and spend a lot less time and send them on their way. So again, I still stand by that. I believe those officers did a pretty good job. Obviously, listen, at this point, she's killed by him. He committed suicide. I wish it would have went differently. If we could turn back the hands of time, arrest them, one of them, both of them, whatever, but that's not what happened. You have to look at it for what it is. It was just an unfortunate incident. 
we really hope and pray that uh, that never happened, but unfortunately it did. And God bless the, the you know the soul of, of uh, Gabby Petito. And again, uh, the family, Brian Laundrie's family, did him no favors by leaving him out there. He wound up committing suicide. That's a whole nother story. But uh, these domestic violence cases, they're very sensitive, and you know you handle them two, three, four, five, six, a half a dozen times during a tour when you're on patrol in the NYPD and, you know, you kind of maybe become complacent. They become routine, but there's that one that has a little bit more and you don't really see it and you could wind up with a tragedy like this. You know, I want to talk about the peripheral people around cases like this too. Brian's mother hiring a private eye to follow her around to see if, she, who did that help? To see if she was having an affair. That potentially could have led to this violent act that he found out she was having an affair. And as I said, what good was that, that the mother did that for her son? It was like pouring gas gasoline on, on an inferno. Mike? Yeah, that might have been the tipping point. Thank you for bringing that up because he knew, he, he probably knew that because of probably things that they've said many times over the, over the previous couple of months, that she was planning on, you know, not coming back for you know to be with him as a husband and wife with those children in that home in 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 Massachusetts. She ha already had a house set up uh, down in in uh, in Washington. She stayed there many nights, probably more nights than she was there in Boston in the Boston area. And uh, perhaps you know it was bad enough thinking that his wife might actually leave him, or there's going to be some sort of divorce involved when he's when he goes off to prison for. Uh, the, the fraud. But then on top of that, you have now marital infidelity. And apparently he was already suspicious and he was following some Instagram account or something like that of someone who he actually thought was, was the guy that she was having an affair with. And the, the mother jumping in, uh, that's never a good thing to have a mother-in-law on any one side jumping into the middle of a, uh, of an intimate uh, husband-wife relationship. And she actually may have contributed to his going off the deep end and uh, killing Anna. That may have been the catalyst to this, yeah. you know, that, that got it going. But, you know, I, we also want to talk about, you know, we all point to that New York Times article after the Murdoch case where he was like, oh, it wasn't fair. Electronic devices were the evidence that really put him away. And, and we were like, dude, first learn about what you're writing about before you right. write this article. Again, electronic devices came up big time. In this case, the searches on his son's iPad, you know, the, uh, the cars, the cell phones, the video of him buying things that uh, Phil pointed out of Lowe's, wearing a mask, all these different electronic devices, bank transactions that we don't even know about, right? Mm -hmm. If he paid cash, that he had to take the cash out of some bank. Good point. The record right there. So all of these things, like to you amateur investigators out there, these are all the things that the police have to think of. And not just the police. Sometimes you have a really good district attorney that's, uh, you know, impugning the police to do certain things. Do this, do that, do that. And, you know, a lot of times... Cops will be like, ah, oh, the DA is giving me too much stuff to do. But the di district attorney is thinking about the jury and presenting the case to a jury. And that's the person, whether it's male or female, that wants to cross their T's and dot their I's. And as many times as a district attorney may say, oh, do this and do that, it's probably a good idea that, that you do it. And uh, because that's going to be uh, that, that evidence in court that's going to ultimately lead to a conviction. Phil? I'm glad you brought that up, Billy, because in every homicide case that I ever worked on, district attorney's office is usually involved in the case early on. They support you by giving you subpoenas, search warrants, different things like that. And again, they do point out a lot of different things that they, you know, they go over the case to evaluate witnesses and they say, all right, you know what, go do a canvas over here, go find a witness over there and things that have be done. And listen, at the end of the day, they're right. They're going to try the case. They want to win the case. They want as much evidence as they can possible to go forward with the trial so they can get a conviction. Like you said, they're thinking about the jury. They're thinking about the legal system. They're thinking about defense attorneys, you know, all the different things, the judge. So again, uh, 
We usually had pretty good cooperation with the Brooklyn DA's office when I worked in Brooklyn, any homicide case. There were contentious times from time to time when they'd be requesting stuff. We wanted to authorize a homicide arrest and they didn't want to go for it yet, go do these two things or these three things, whatever it was. And I got to tell you, 100% of the time, they won the argument. We did it. And then we went forward with the case, whether it be, uh, you know, an arrest or, you know, go do something else. And, and the case remained open. Uh, it just, we had a good relationship with them and they were very good with us. And, you know, like I said, they're the support. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, they wind up in Brooklyn and in five boroughs in New York, they always authorized whether or not we were going to make an arrest for homicide. You know, a lot of people will argue over the fact that, uh, you know, this world is a bubble. We have license plate readers. There's video cameras everywhere. Uh, your electronics are tracked. The GPS in your phone is tracked. There's those little round things that they can throw in your car. And that tiles, a tile, tiles, you know, that then NYPD now is talking about handing them out to people because uh, grand loss in the auto has gone through the roof. Guess what? Start locking people up and it won't go through the roof. It's these ideas that come out instead of doing police work in the district attorney. And I'm not blaming the police. They're doing their job. The district attorney refusing to prosecute cases. It's sort of funny. Oh, we're going to give out tiles so people can track their own cause. Oh, so they're going to get their car back from the bad guy? You're going to get people killed trying to retrieve their cars. It makes no sense whatsoever, you know. Mike? Bill, you go ahead, Mike. Oh, it's ideology over competence. You know, the, the idea, and you, we've done this. We've gone through this from the 80s and the 90s and into the present day. We know that probably, you know, we a few career criminals, you know, are responsible for the vast majority of crime. You don't have to lock up, you know, 600,000 people in New York City every single year. You lock up 6,000 and you'll t and they'll and that will probably lower the, the crime rate by like 50 percent. It's just we know that the people, the poor people who are the ones who are in most need of policing, uh, they're the ones who are uh, the, the most victimized by anybody else because they have to live in those neighborhoods. They don't have the ability to move to a different neighborhood. They're the ones that are suffering the most. And district attorneys who just cannot uh, stand politically, the optics uh, are, are doing a very disservice there. It's ideology over competence. And they're victim they're re-victimizing the poor people who just cannot, who, who, who rely 100% on the district attorneys and the police department. It's sad. Well, Mike, I remember, you know, we all worked through the Comstat era and we all oh, yeah. we all know, and I, I think all three, I could speak for all three of us, how effective broken windows style policing mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And you say that now, and it's a dirty word to these progressives. Oh my God, broken windows. Concentrating right? on the little crimes and that'll have an effect. It works, it 100% works. And the problem is they don't want to prosecute even serious crimes now. When you hear this clown brag, the Manhattan DA, you know, dropping a robbery first degree to a misdemeanor, sticking a gun in someone's face and taking their property, and then he's going to downgrade it to a misdemeanor. That's criminal. He should be arrested for that. 100%, Billy, 100%. And, you know, what Mike was basically talking about is what we refer to as a recidivist. Someone yeah. continues to commit the same crime over and over again. And I, I saw a, a statistic recently. I can't remember the exact numbers, but they said in the New York City subway system where crime has gone through the roof, if they arrested a certain number, I, I think it was less than 200 individuals, that there would be a major, major drop in crime. And again, that goes throughout the city. You have the same people committing the same crimes over and over. Back in the 80s, when I was in the robbery squad, I would be able to get uh, a police report of a robbery. A robbery is when someone sticks a gun in a person's face or they use force or a knife or whatever it is. And I'd be able to look at it and see the description, the location, and I knew the same players were playing that area. And we would go out and we would try to find and sure enough, we would get that person uh, get a photo ID, then put them in a lineup and we would make the arrest. And there was a bit of a sort of a turnstile justice where they would get out rather quickly. A lot of times if there wasn't a serious injury, if you had a complainant that didn't want to press charges, they were afraid whether it would be an elderly person or something of that nature. 
these guys would get out again. But again, we need to crack down on that type of crime if you want to see crime go down. Broken windows policy, I couldn't uh, laud it enough. I think it's uh, something that worked in the past and it'll work again. Absolutely. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Now, everybody that watches Police Off the Cruff Real, uh, Real Crime Stories, they know that Joe's a big supporter of the channel. But I want to tell you about Joe. Joe is a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He was also a boxer, and now he's in criminal law. He's a terrific attorney. He might be able to deliver that knockout punch on your case. So if you have need uh, for an attorney in the criminal area or in New York City just for advice, you could get a hold of Joe at jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a terrific guy and a very, very good uh, criminal defense attorney. Joe, thanks for all you do for Police Off the Cuff. Absolutely. You know, folks in the chat, and we know we've covered these cases before, these domestic violence incidents, and if there's anyone out there in the chat that, uh, you know, wants to email us or talk to us about a problem they're having, you know, we're, we're willing to talk to you. And of course, the police off the cuff, it's police off the cuff, the number one at gmail.com. Uh, we could, at the very least, uh, refer you to the right place and give you uh, good advice because we understand that, uh, you know, these situations, these domestic violence situations, they're not easy. We're not trying to oversimplify Look, relationships are difficult, you know, and even the best relationships have their peaks and valleys, you know, and uh, but, you know, when it gets violent, that's that's a time that uh, you got to do something about it. And that's a time that the law has to get involved. Mike. Yeah, the uh, the violence can happen before the uh, relationship breaks apart and maybe the cause of the relationship. It may escalate for a long period of time. And sometimes there are hills and valleys where the uh, the uh, violence will escalate. Then there'll be a, a honeymoon phase, and it'll go back to escalating again. So it's um, it's it's a very dynamic and dangerous situation. Um, and even at the end of the relationship, if there hasn't been violence, it still may occur when when these people who are now used to be a couple are now apart. And now they have to share the responsibilities of having children. I remember seeing couples having to um, bring their children to the to the front front steps of the four six precinct to exchange their children on a Friday evening, so that the father can then have custody for the weekend, because there was such danger uh, for for the uh, interrupting on both sides. We've had some very violent ladies uh, also. So um, there is a lot, the dynamics it's of, of a domestic violence situation, as we all know, it's very fluid and it's very unpredictable and it's very dangerous for police officers and even in the most uh, routine manner. And so um, it's, it's uh, one of those type of situations that along with car stops are the most dangerous assignments for police officers statistically. Agreed. You know, Mike, one of the toughest jobs I ever handled as a police sergeant was a domestic violence incident between two deaf mutes. It was nearly like a, an impossible job. And wow. Sector Adam in the 2-4 precinct, they handled it for like an hour before they called me there. And they, they just they basically held up their hands like, we, we don't know what to do. And I got to the scene and I was just like, take this into the station house, you know, that's the best place to deal with it. But you know how they say, Oh, call operations. They have people waiting there. Uh, oh yeah. Sign languages. Yeah. Yeah. They must not have been working that night, you know? So, <laughs> and I wound up having an interaction with this couple several more times. And the next, the next time I was called, I just put the handcuffs on the guy and he was a big dude and he was strong and he fought us too. And, uh, it was just like, you know, this guy got to get collared. That's the only way this is going to stop, you know, and that that did somewhat stop it. Well, it curtailed it for a while and then it picked up again later on. Yeah, it's they're very dangerous. I remember with Augie, you know, Augie, we worked together in the four six for years. We locked up a gentleman for uh, domestic violence for battering his wife and he started crying and pleading for her. 
and she actually jumped on Augie's back to stop him from arresting her. And then I had to arrest her for, you know, uh, interfering with, with, with policing. And so they both ended up getting arrested. And we yeah, had really... and they're in cells across from each other. We go, I love you, honey. I know I love you too. And you're oh, like, this is crazy, you know. It was ridiculous, <laughs> but this is the kind of thing that, that there's no, you know, uh, the fine line between love and hate. It's not even a line. Sometimes it's like it's like a dash. It just goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. They're very volatile, very unpredictable. Uh, people will go back, unfortunately, to the home or it, back into the relationship. And that is very dangerous because then if it if they go back, then if they've they've ceded power back to the abuser and that makes it even more dangerous, unfortunately. Absolutely. Phil, you know, I could remember a case on Christmas Day, I believe it was 1984, 83, 80, no, 83. Uh, same thing. Domestic violence case. A guy was drunk, fighting with his sister. The police are called. Uh, we go in there. The guy pulls a knife, tries to stab my partner. We wind up in a wrestling match, hit him with the nightstick. While we're wrestling with this guy, uh, I feel somebody pull my hair from behind. I turn around and I shove the person. It was the sister that called the police on the brother. And the funny thing about it was at the end of the whole thing, you know, we, we were by ourselves. There was only two cars in the whole precinct. We get the guy cuffed. We get him to the precinct. Three, four hours later, we're doing all the processing. He, I'm sorry, guys. I was drunk. I didn't mean it. He wound up apologizing, but extremely dangerous. The guy actually had two knives. He pulled a knife on us when we went through the door, he drew our guns. He dropped the knife. We started talking with him, and then it escalated. He pulled another knife, like a steak knife, out of his bathrobe, went to stab my partner. We wound up in the bedroom on the floor, and uh, that's when the sister, sure enough, from behind, pulled my hair, trying, you know, attack us from uh, arresting her brother that she called the police. So you never know uh, these things, they turn like that. Yeah, yeah they're very volatile situations. Folks, we're Absolutely. gonna keep covering these, situa these situations, especially domestic violence, because we think it can help our audience, uh, which is made up, uh, by the way, of 74% females. I don't know how that happened, but we have a 74 Course of me, baby, course of me. But the Phil straight out of Brooklyn. They want, they want to go on a cannoli date. That's it. <laughs> So, uh, 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 Mike, final words. Final words. Uh, I think people should, uh, when they see this case, they see cases like the Gabby Petito case and Melanie Kingsbury case and this case with Anna Walsh, that um, the, these, these cases stem from uh, this. It's not just the very first time that there's probably more likely than, than not a, a trail of, unfortunately, later on, when you find out later on after after the incident, but there's probably been a, a number of previous incidents that have led up to this particular incident where the the, uh, the female, or in some cases, the male goes missing. And uh, people should just realize that the police are, are well-trained. They've got a lot of, you know, tools, law enforcement tools at their disposal. Um, but, uh, you know, um, if there anybody here in that's listening as in the podcast, if they or a loved one is the victim of some domestic violence, please implore them to get out as soon as possible. 100%. Phil, final words. Unfortunately for Anna Walsh, uh, this didn't turn out too good. Uh, she's probably dead. I think, I think that's a gimme at this point. Uh, keep her and those three children in your prayers. Uh, the family. I think there's a strong case against Brian Walsh in this case. We went through all of the evidence. Uh, you know, he's probably going to wind up getting convicted. Let's hope and pray for the justice of that. And I'm just going to agree with everything that Mike said. Uh, if you are a victim of domestic violence or any threat of violence in a domestic situation, there are services. I know in the Brooklyn DA's office, they had a unit that was assigned just to help victims of domestic violence. So again, wherever community you're in, reach out. And if you need to reach us, build a, a website was uh, police off the cuff number one at Gmail. Is that correct? That's the uh, email yeah, address. Off one at Gmail, right? Exactly. Reach out. We could always steer you guys in the right direction and give some advice if need be. So again, uh, domestic violence, a very, very tough uh, thing to swallow, uh, very, very volatile situations. And uh, let's keep these people in thoughts and prayers. 
Folks, that's our show for this evening, Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Again, I want to thank everyone for their prayers for my 21-hour drive back from Florida. I made You're it a trooper, home. Bill. You're a I'm trooper. I'm a little numb for two days, but I'm here. I went to the gym today, and I'm still a little bit beat up. But, uh, but I We're glad it. to have you back, Billy. We're glad oh, to thanks. have you back. Good to be back, guys. Have a great night, everyone, and God bless. Stay safe, everyone. Good night. One episode, just ain't enough.